Thank you, Lillian. What an awesome song. There ought to be something different in us. There ought to be something different about us. The world, when they look at us, they ought to see something different. Boy, it'd be, it'd be disappointing for us as a child of God to be so camouflaged in the world they didn't even know we were a Christian. Wouldn't you hate for somebody to have to ask you, are you a Christian? I would almost find that offensive. Uh, I, I guess maybe, I guess maybe it wouldn't be just the end of the world, but I would rather they just know they just something that much different about us. Um, they see the love of Christ in us and sense the love of God on us. Awesome song. Thank you very much. You'll be turning in your Bibles this evening. We'll be in the book of Acts chapter number 9. We, uh, last week we were at the end of Acts chapter 7 and the beginning of Acts chapter 8, and we looked at, um, even back to the week before, we looked at the the first of the deacons that had chosen the church. And last week we looked at how Stephen, one of the first deacons in the church, and a man full of the faith, Stephen was stoned to death. And we kind of covered that. And I'll be honest, in chapter 8, um, if you look on down, you want to read through chapter 8, there's still several more stories in Acts chapter 8. There is a lot of messages to be preached in Acts chapter 8. We could, if we were just doing a study through the book of Acts, we could bog down right there for quite a while in Acts chapter 8, but I'm really not doing that. I've just been studying some. To be honest, all I'm really studying is the life of the apostles um, and studying the lives of some men that appear to me to be some incredibly godly men, some of the men that walked with the Lord Jesus Christ and see how it influenced their life and how it changed their life and what it did in them. And as I've been studying these lives, the um, Lord's just been allowing me to bring messages from this book on the Acts of the Apostles. So tonight we want to look at the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Everybody knows that the Apostle Paul was not always the Apostle Paul, right? How many of us in here used to be a Saul? Everybody knows what we're looking at here this evening. You may want to keep your Bibles open because in about the next 30 minutes, we're going to cover all of chapter 9. Um, as we look through, so it's certainly not a word-by-word -word study, but you may want to keep your Bible open to chapter 9 so you can look at the passages as we reference going through them. But before we read the text this evening, let me ask you a couple of questions to kind of get us started. How many of you have ever had a child? Most. How many of you have ever been somebody's child? The greatest majority, there's a few that's not. <laughs> we'll discuss that later, either they're just completely not honest. But how many have ever heard things, you may have even used those things yourself, you know, things like, don't eat that, it'll spoil your dinner. But then you ate that, and come dinner time, you weren't hungry. So it made those rutabagas and junk you didn't want just that much nastier. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know how y'all grew up, but I grew up in the country, and I grew up as on my plate, shut up and eat it. And I wasn't getting up till it was gone. I remember when Robin and I first started dating. Well, we'd been dating a little while, but her sisters, we ate one day. We all went out to eat, and um, one of her sisters asked her after dinner we got through. She said, my gosh, does he eat the parsley too? I clean the plate when I get done. I, that's just the way I was brought up. But, you know, you hear things like, man, don't eat too much of that candy. You eat too much of that candy, it'll make you sick. That was some wisdom talking, but might have been a little hard-headed on the listening side. And you ate a bunch of candy, and 
ended up sick. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Um, don't touch that. That, that. It's hot. Don't touch that. That'll burn you. You ended up with butter on your hand. Why? You just had to touch it. You just had to know. Or, or even some things, especially things like soup or something. Be careful now. Don't eat that too fast. That's hot. That'll burn you. I'm just <laughs> getting in trouble. Corey, go ahead and crawl under the pew. Corey don't like me. My children, I don't use my family very often. They don't like it, and, and I can appreciate that. But when Corey was little, we were eating something. must have been some salsa or something, something pretty spicy. And um, he wants some. You don't know this is hot. And man, I want some. Can't have none of that. It's hot. Well, he just kept on, so it don't take me but a minute, and I'll just go ahead and let you learn if I don't feel like it's going to hurt you too bad. On some, fine, have yourself some. <laughs> so he eats some, he says, it's not hot. About 30 minutes later, you got that look. <laughs> I started watering up. He said, yeah, hot too. <laughs> Y'all kind of know the feel. Sometimes we just have to learn for ourselves. Y'all know what I mean? We just, we have to learn from experiences that don't stick. Well, tonight I want to look at, there's some trials in life. That sometimes we just have to face them in order to be the true believer that God has designed us to be. Sometimes God puts things before us and he tells us not to do it. But it ain't no different than the candy not to eat too much. And God, like the good father that he is, says, go ahead, we'll clean it up on the backside. And God goes ahead and he lets us learn some things. Sometimes the only way to get to where we're going is to experience some things for ourselves. Other people's experiences are great teachers, I'll give you that. I, I read books for a reason, I study behind other men for a reason, because they've learned a lot of things. They've had a lot of life's experiences. And I pray to God I never have to live all of the experiences that life has to offer. Anybody agree with that? I don't want to have to go through all of them. But one of the things that we can do is we can read some other man's experiences. And, and we can learn from things that they've been through. And learn from the testimonies of others. But even the things that we read, even the things that we learn, those are the things that we kind of know. But the things that we absolutely know are the things that we've learned from our own experiences. Here in our text this evening, we have a man by the name of Saul. Saul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he's a Pharisee. Circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He's the man, just in case you don't know it. In his day, in the day coming up, he is the man. And he's not only the man at that time, but he's going to be an even bigger man. He's got everything from a worldly perspective. He's got everything going for him. He's got the blessings of the high priest behind him. He's got all the priests in the temple around him. And, and he's going to move up in this world according to man's way of thinking. He's going to gain more notoriety as soon as he gets rid of this knucklehead bunch called Christians. As soon as he rids this earth of that foolish stuff, as soon as he proves once and for all by shutting their mouth that Jesus is dead. He died on the cross, 
And we've heard all we're going to listen to about that foolishness of this man named Jesus. And in order to make a name for myself, I'm going to be one of the ones that's going to put a stop to all this garbage. We've seen how he just led the charge against Stephen. And it says that the men that stoned Stephen laid their clothes at the apostle Paul's feet. Well, actually, it would have been Saul. i got to be careful about referring to him as the Apostle Paul. At that particular point in his life, they laid their clothes at Saul's feet as he was consenting to the death of Stephen as everybody else stoned him simply for teaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our text tonight in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, says that Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he, be found, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall, told, it shall be told thee what thou must do. Father, I pray you'd take this word tonight, God. I pray you'd take this passage, this chapter, God, I pray that you take the life of one of your great servants, Saul, that became the Apostle Paul, and I pray, God, you teach one of us, God, let us see the Saul in us, and let us see the Paul that you see. God, I, I pray you'd help us to see that old Pharisee that's in us, God, that needs to be cleaned up, that needs to be cleaned out, that needs to be washed away. God, I pray you'd show us that side, Father. God, I pray you would show us what grace sees, God. Help us to see what you see us being, Father. We might become what you want us to be. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's, a, there's a book written by a man named Frank Morrison. The title of the book is Who Moved the Stone? I don't know if anyone's ever read this particular book. But in the preface it says this. It says, I owe Morrison a great debt of gratitude. Who moved the stone was an important early link in a long chain of evidence that God used to bring me into his kingdom. Morrison's stirring intellectual exploration of the historical record proved to be an excellent starting point for my spiritual investigation. From the forward by Lee Strobel English, journalist Frank Morrison had a tremendous drive to learn of Christ. The strangeness of the resurrection story had captured his attention and influenced by skeptic thinkers at the turn of the century. It did set out to prove that the story of Christ's resurrection was only a myth. His probings, however, led him to discover the validity of the biblical record in a moving, personal way. Who Moved the Stone is considered by many to be a classic apologetic on the subject of the resurrection. Morrison includes a vivid and poignant account of Christ's betrayal trial and death as a backdrop to his retelling of the climatic resurrection itself. The fact is, Morrison set out to write a book, yet he found himself writing a book that was very different than the one that he set out to write. It's kind of like a personal testimony. Morrison set out to write a book about this mystical Jesus. He set out to write a book about the, the historical legend of this ancient folklore that everybody called 
Jesus. He set out to disprove all of this stuff. See, he believed that the stories that we call God's true, holy, written word, he believed that the stories of those miracles were simply wives' tales, especially the ones surrounding the resurrection. In the end, Morrison ended up with a personal conversion, and he ended up proving what he had sought so hard to disprove. His heart was changed so much because he set out to write a book that, that Jesus was a myth. And he set out to write a book that he was either a myth and he never existed or either these people around him just created these stories that made it happen. And he was changed so much in his life that the first chapter of his book is called a book that was refused to be written. God did a work in him. That's the same kind of experience that we see here in our text tonight. Just shows us that God's still working in the same kind of ways. What we see here in Saul with the apostle, he, he went from being one of the greatest persecutors of the church to one of the greatest disciples of the faith. Luke, we first saw him introduce Saul back in chapter 7, verse 58. And then in chapter 1, we saw it last week. Saul was consenting to his death, talking about Stephen when they brought Stephen to stone him, consenting to his death. At that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Saul's determination to get rid of these Christians drove him to the leaders to get letters to go to other cities so that not just in Jerusalem will I get rid of these troublemakers, but in all the cities around here, I'm going to do away with these that proclaim the name of Jesus. I'm going to get rid of these that we call Christians. The people of Damascus heard that he was coming. The people of Damascus are terrified. They understand it, that this man is coming, and he's coming for them. How would you like to know that a man like that with all the authority of the government and all the firepower behind him. And I'll be honest, he didn't need any excuse to kill you. You see that in the life of Stephen. All he had to do was claim blasphemy, that you blasphemed God by his standard. And you're dead. So all the people at Damascus are fearful knowing that it's coming. I mean, what are they going to do? Who's going to protect them from this Saul? Certainly the government's not. Rome's not. Nobody around them is. They have no defense. Or so it would seem. That's where we find our text this evening. When Jesus is on your side, you don't need anything else. Jesus takes care of things that you never saw. There's been some men on the road to your Damascus that Jesus stopped along your way and they never made it to your house. There's been some trouble brewing heading your way, maybe on a downtown street one night, and there were some people headed to your Damascus, and Jesus showed up on your road to Damascus, and he may not have turned a Saul into a Paul, but he turned them around and took them out of your world. As long as we got Jesus, we got all we need, amen? So Saul here is on his way to Damascus midday. Jesus puts him on his knees. We read there in our text in verse 3 that as he journeyed, he came to Damascus. Suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. I wonder what Saul must have thought at that point. Huh? You who? You do, do what? You're the one that's dead. 
Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm talking to the one that I'm going over here to tell everybody that he's dead. I mean, it's at that moment that Saul, this great man, this Hebrew of Hebrews, with all of his power and all of his authority, it's at that point that he realizes that I'm wrong. And these Christians are right. I thought he was dead. They said he rose from the dead, but I thought they were idiots. I was just trying to get rid of them. Jesus really is the Son of God. Saul got to Damascus. He didn't eat anything. He didn't drink anything for three days. All he did was pray. Can you imagine what he must have been thinking? What was going through his mind? Three days, knowing that all this time he's been fighting against the God that he claimed to serve. He's been fighting against the God that he claimed to be working for. Not only that, but he's been killing God's own children. He stood there. I wonder how many times he thought about this in those three days. He stood there as they stoned Stephen to death. He stood there and watched him do it with the clothes. And he stood there, Stephen. He said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. I wonder how many times it crossed his mind. And he thought, That really happened. He really looked. And he really saw the Son of God. Not only that, but I wonder if he thought this. That means that the Son of God, seated at the right hand of God, were both watching as we killed him. And that's on my plate. Wonder if he put much thought into, wonder what Jesus is going to say when he shows back up. He told me to go here and wait, and I'm waiting. But I wonder what I'm waiting on. Saul learned a lot about the truth that day, amen? Now he understands that the resurrection story of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just some myth, but it is the truth of salvation. It's the truth of the life of sinners saved by grace, raised from death, given life through this Lord Jesus Christ. He's spoken with Jesus himself. There's no doubt about Jesus being alive. He doesn't need anybody to prove it. He's heard his own voice. Talk to him face to face. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah that he and all these others have been looking for, and they missed it. He was there the whole time, and they missed it. And now he's been out persecuting Christians for it. Along with all that, he now realizes that all this time, while calling himself a servant of God, he's really been a servant of Satan. The devil's been using his life to destroy the lives of God's children. So while Saul is fasting and praying for these three days, Jesus Christ is working on his behalf, just like he is yours. Jesus goes over to one of his children's house. He goes over and visits with a man named Ananias. And Ananias is like, uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> Jesus, I know you know all things, but apparently you don't know that guy. Because I've heard some stuff. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard by many. In chapter 9, verse number 13, if you want to look at it, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. He hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. 
But the Lord said unto him, now, just in case if you ever had any doubt about what God can do in your life, just in case you ever thought that you were bound by your sin, just in case you thought God forgave me enough to save me, but not enough to use me, just in case you think you've got something so bad in your life that could keep you from being a Billy Graham kind of man, that God could use around the world to spread the gospel, just in case, just in case you think you've got something that could hinder God from using you. We're talking about the man who is killing Christians any day. The man who killed one of the first deacons of the church, the man who was there, and God watched as they stoned Stephen. Now, if Stephen saw him at the right hand, then we know they watched as Stephen was stoned, right? So here we have the man that is responsible for it. And Jesus said to Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But he says this in verse number 16. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. The way that Saul found Jesus is the same way that you and I and every other believer comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about it briefly this morning. Everybody at some point in this life will come face to face with Jesus. At some point, everybody in this life will come face to face and they will accept or they will deny the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But at some point, every breathing life Come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul has to swallow a lot of, of self-righteousness right here. Saul has to admit a lot of mistakes. Just like you and I, Saul's got to make a lot of changes. He realized he's doing a lot of things wrong, and there's a power much greater than him that has a much higher purpose for his life. He has to realize the error of his ways. So Saul doesn't waste any time here. You, you see it, he sets out immediately to begin to serve Jesus with the same zeal that he used to persecute this man, Jesus. But there's another surprising lesson there to be learned. In the religion where Saul had been, the higher you get, the better off you are. You're the high priest. You're the highest of the high priest. And you have higher levels of priests. And the more you do, the more you work. Kind of falls into so many of the false religions of today's world. The more you do, the more you work. The more you draw in, the higher you get. And the more notoriety you get, the more popular you become. So the higher your status. And that's the religion that he came from. And so the more I work, the more I do, the, the more elite I will become. But Jesus says, I'm going to teach you. Some things that you got to suffer. You know, if you study the Word of God and you really look closely at the men of God, what you'll find in a lot of cases is that suffering seems to be a mark of authenticity. God's children seem to go through a lot. So immediately, Saul begins preaching Jesus, and immediately he began to be persecuted. He used every opportunity he had to tell others about this Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 21 there in your text. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which called on his name in Jerusalem? And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. But the more they questioned him, the stronger he became. 
Look at verse 22. Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. The Jews are realizing what's happening here. They're seeing what's going on with this Saul. And they know that if Saul continues to preach this name, Jesus, they're going to lose any chance of getting rid of these Christians. So that means they got to get rid of this Saul. Before we can go back to the business of killing all the Christians, first thing we got to get rid of is this traitor named Saul. So they devise a plan to kill him. When he goes out of the gates of Damascus in the evening, we got men hidden by the gates, and they're going to ambush and attack him, and they're going to kill this man, Saul. And so what they have is this secret plan. But you can't keep secrets from God. God made the Christians aware of the plan, so they, they let Saul down in a window by night so that Saul could escape. The very people that Saul came to kill is the very people that God used to save Saul's life. Ain't God something? Never, never doubt that God is in complete control of your every situation. It may not look like it at the time. Your, your, your plate may look like some scrambled eggs sometimes. But God's got it under control. He knows exactly what he's doing. Scrambled eggs ain't all that bad if you throw some bacon and some grits in there with it. God's just working on something. So Saul escaped. They let him down. He goes to Jerusalem. So this man who once pursued the Christians is now pursued himself by the Jews. So when Saul got to Jerusalem, and as you would expect, he didn't receive much of a welcome. Not like the Christians were glad to see you back. You remember all they know is Saul. All they know is his reputation. So even the apostles didn't have much to say to him. Everybody was still afraid of him. But then this Christian by the name of Barnabas took Saul and introduced him to the apostles down in verse number 27, if you'll look there in chapter 9. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and how they had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas tells the apostles he's a changed man and the one who changed him is the same one that changed you and I in the same way that he changed you and I anybody have that story in your own testimony yeah sure he's different three of us thank you all of you that joined with me because the rest of us they don't know what we're talking about but the world around us said yeah right you're like he's different yeah we'll see how long that lasts Barnabas says he's a changed man. Barnabas shows us the mark here of a true Christian because while everybody else is accusing him of being a spy and trying to come in, you know, number one, I don't see Saul as the kind of man to be a spy anyway. He ain't coming in to find out something to go back and tell somebody else. He's coming in to take care of business when he gets there. But it says that others taught him to be a spy, and, and Barnabas sensed the spirit within him. He heard the story, and he believed the story, and the story connected. See, the difference is Barnabas looked for the good in others. Barnabas is an example of what you and I in here tonight are supposed to be. Barnabas doesn't hold other people's past against them. Barnabas isn't holding someone else's mistakes 
against him, realizing that he has a past of his own, understanding it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are what we are, that the blood of Jesus Christ can change somebody else the same way it changed me. And I may not have known you before, but there was a change in me. All things truly passed away. All things truly became new. We ought not never condemn people just because they failed one time in their past. William Barclay says on page 86 of the Acts of the Apostles, he says, the world is largely divided into two groups, those who think the best of others and those who think the worst. It's one of those curious facts of life that in others we see our own reflection and make them what we believe them to be. Now here's what that means in a nutshell. If you're faking it, and you think everybody else is faking it too. Mm-hmm. If it ain't all that real to you, it really ain't all that real to them either. If grace isn't all that special to you, because you don't really think you're all that bad like we talked about this morning, and grace ain't really all that amazing to you, then you think grace ain't really all that amazing to them either. Mm. It just boils down to you just think they're just putting on more of a show than you are. But you think what's not real to you, the others are just like you. Barclay said, no one believed in people the way Jesus did. And it ought to be enough for God's children to imitate Jesus. Saul continues to preach. Now he's in Jerusalem. A perfect example right here to every Christian when he's moved. It it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter your situation. It doesn't matter why you had to leave Damascus. It doesn't matter how you ended up back in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter where God's put you at this point in time. Wherever you are, your job is still the same. That's to tell everybody about Jesus. If God moves you from a place to a place, the job doesn't change, just the location. No matter where you are during your day, no matter where you're at in your job, no matter maybe the car breaks down and you wind up at a gas station you wasn't supposed to be at doing something, God puts you in places for the same reason. Because there's somebody there that needs to hear about Jesus. The job never, never changes. It's always about Jesus. So once again, the plot, the plot of the Jews now becomes to kill Saul. And once again, Saul escapes. But out of it all, Saul becomes a, a true believer. Something that's funny, though, is that when Saul became a true believer, for the first time in his life, Saul realizes what it's like to be persecuted. When he was persecuting God's children, he was never persecuted. But when he became one of God's children, for the first time in his life, he understands what it's like not to have all that, but to be the one that's persecuted. See, to suffer persecution sometimes seems to be a true mark of a Christian. William Barclay, again, Acts of the Apostles, page 86 and 87. He says, dealing with the life of Saul, Barclay says... No one persecutes the person who is ineffective. Did y'all hear that one? No one, where did I read that from? No one persecutes the person who is ineffective. That goes back to the devil ain't worried about you sitting on a pew. devil ain't worried about you claiming to be a Christian as long as you ain't living like one. Doing more harm than good for the cause of Christ. 
No one persecutes the person who is ineffective. He says, the critic and the playwright, George Bernard Shaw, once said that the biggest compliment you can pay an author is to burn his books. Someone else said, and I don't have the quote on this, I don't know where I got it from, but, but they said, now, I, I like this one. Y'all may like this one. A wolf will never attack a painted sheep. False Christianity is always safe. Real Christianity is what's always in peril. That's good, ain't it? Only real sheep come under the attack from the wolves. To suffer persecution, he says, is to be paid the greatest compliments because it is certain proof that people think you really matter. To suffer persecution means the devil's a little bit worried about you. To suffer persecution is a sign that Satan's a little bit upset that you're still on the planet. To suffer persecution is for the devil to say, oh my goodness, it's morning time and that one's up again. I wish he'd just go back to bed. To suffer persecution, all that means is the demons of hell are worried about who you're going to meet today. Because they might lose another one. To suffer persecution just means that God's got his hands on you and he's putting you out there in a pack of wolves to use you out there. And the wolves know they can't touch you because Jesus has got his hand on you. Hmm. The thing that, that I, I like here in the comparison is, is it doesn't matter what year, it doesn't matter what century, what decade, whatever terminology you want to use, the life of the Christian is always the same. We are saved to serve. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you also. They hated me first. Don't be surprised when they hated those who come after me who are trying to live like me. Somewhere around 33 to 35 years A.D., Saul met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Some say as late as 38, but somewhere in that window in the mid-30-year range after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Saul, while on a mission to disprove Jesus Christ, and get rid of this theory of Christianity, and to get rid of this theory of resurrection, Saul met Jesus. Roughly 1,950 years later, in 1987, a man by the name of Morrison set out on a journey much like that of Saul to disprove Jesus Christ, to prove that it was a myth to prove that he never existed, and if he did, that, that the resurrection is nothing more than a hoax. Morrison tried to write a book that could not be written. God says, you'll not write that about my son. I believe he had two options, accept Christ or die. That book was never going to be written. And he titles the first chapter a book that refused to be written. That's awesome, isn't it? Saul, when he left Jerusalem, headed to Damascus, he would have never in his wildest dreams ever imagined that I'd be on the side of Christianity. I'm going to get rid of these fruit baskets. I'm not going to be one of them. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into this salvation stuff. It's just a myth. Saul, in, in all of his thought, of all of his wisdom, and all that he knew, 
He never once imagined that he'd be on the other side of Christianity. But yet he ended up living a life that he never thought he'd live. Anybody living a life right now you never thought you'd live? It's no different. It's no different. Saul, Saul's just like you and I. Any ever, anybody ever sit back when you was a child and this is where you thought you'd be? Oh, I can tell you, I thought of some wild and some crazy stuff as a young man and a lot of things that I was going to do in life, and I promise you, preaching wasn't never one of them. And the people around me agreed with me wholeheartedly. It wasn't ever going to be. I, I pictured a lot of things. I, even after college and graduating and working in some jobs, I pictured a lot of different things that I would do, and most all of them involved making money and a lot of it. Even after I got saved, the focal point was the same. Anybody know what I'm talking about? In my, in my craziest thoughts, I never imagined pastoring a church. I'm just using me because I don't have your story. You never, you never saw yourself as being the one at work, sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ around a bunch of wolves that don't want to hear it. You never saw yourselves being at your workplace, being the one to defend Christianity. You never saw yourselves at your workplace, being the one trying to invite people to church, trying to tell them about Christ, trying to tell them about salvation. You never saw yourself as being the one that other people come to you to ask for prayer. The very ones that ridicule, the very ones that have laughed, the very ones that have poked fun, the very ones that you've been inviting to church and you know they ain't never going to come, but you just keep on inviting them, the very one that laughs at you, the very one that tells the jokes behind your back, all the ones that get in the little groupies over there and laugh and tear you down and call you holy roller and goody two-shoes, the very ones that tear you down are the very ones that you let hell come knocking on their door. You let cancer come inside their house. You let their child be sick and you find out who they're going to come to talk to you never thought that'd be you but Jesus always knew he always knew that one day there was a road to your Damascus he knew that one day you'd answer the call amen I, I, know, I know I'm not in this all by myself you and I are living a life we never intended to live. But God gave it to us. See, God gave us both lives. He gave me the breath in my lungs. He gave me the strength in my legs. He, he gave me this physical life. But he gave me my life on the other side of Damascus. He gave me eternal life. My eternal life is to serve him. Saul had a lot of zeal, man. He was a man's man. He was a he-man. He was a bad unit. But he served God with the same zeal that he fought against God. I guess if there's a question in here for us tonight, do you serve God with the same zeal on this side of salvation that you parted on the other side? Do you talk about Jesus on this side of salvation as much as you talked about the things of the world on the other side of salvation? Do you put as much into this life serving God 
as you did into just living your life before Christ. Because if we didn't, we're missing the mark. Can I tell you something? I don't know how many of us is in here. But I do know this. However many it is, that's how many Apostle Pauls are sitting in this room tonight. There's not a person in here who couldn't have an Apostle Paul story. A man that wrote more books of the Bible than the rest of them put together. And especially the New Testament wrote half of it. A man that killed Christians becomes the author of God's word or the Holy Spirit used him to pen it. Isn't that awesome? Do you believe what God's word says where it talks about he is no respecter of persons? And do you believe that God can do in you what he did in the Apostle Paul? That's a pretty strong thought, isn't it? But it's reality. Do we believe God is still great? Do we believe Jesus Christ is still able? Do we believe the power of God still changes men and moves in the hearts of lives? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is still calling people to preach and to share the gospel? Do we believe that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do we believe those things? Without a doubt. Oh, you believe him? Raise your hand. Look at somebody beside and say, I believe it. And if we believe it, then that means everybody in here, there's an Apostle Paul living inside of you. And every one of us in this place has trusted Jesus Christ. We're on the other side of the road to Damascus. We've already had our experience. We're already supposed to be proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every single day that we don't is a wasted day. Amen. I want to ask if you would, if you stand where you are. I want to ask if we just pray together for a few minutes this evening. And ask God to help us be the Apostle Paul that sent us. Even this morning at, at the altar, and it's true, and I hear it, and I'm very thankful. I'm like them. I, I, I thank God that I'm not what I used to be, but I know I'm not what I need to be. That's kind of where we all are. We're all just clay in the potter's hand. He's just shaping and molding and making. And what I don't want to do is have to be marred and start all over. I don't want to have to. I don't want to get out of line. I don't want to get so far from the perfect will of God that, that the potter has to mar the clay and start redesigning. I want him to just keep on shaping. I believe, I believe that there's an Apostle Paul in everybody in this place. And the hardest one in this room that I have trouble believing that about is myself because I know me. But I have to believe that if there was an Apostle Paul in Saul, and there's an Apostle Paul in each of you, then there has to be an Apostle Paul in me. And I want to be that Apostle Paul. I want Christ to be magnified in my life. Anybody here tonight, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have a personal relationship. You've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You don't know if you died tonight, if you go to heaven or not, or maybe you do know. Maybe you know you'd go to hell if you died tonight. If you've never trusted Christ right where you're at, Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking at you, nobody will point you out. You hold your hand up where you're at. I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. I don't want anybody to go home tonight having doubted their salvation, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By our own testimony, that's all God's children in the house. Every one of us in here have been saved and washed in the blood. That means every one of us 
has met Jesus. We've all had our road to Damascus experience. I don't know, maybe you're waiting on Ananias to come tell you what to do. I guess it really boils down more to if Ananias came to your house and told you would you do what he told you to do. If you got your marching orders, if Jesus says, hey, I got something for you to do, and it seemed really left wing, way out there, left field somewhere, way out of your comfort zone, that ain't me at all. But you knew Christ was giving it to you to do. The question really, I guess, is would you do it? There's a good chance if it's right in your wheelhouse of comfort zone, it probably ain't God. If it's really uncomfortable, but you know Christ will get the glory out of it, it's probably God sending you somewhere you ain't been to do something you ain't done. 